Hi, and welcome to Clerkship Ready Pediatrics, a podcast aimed at helping you excel during your clinical rotation in pediatrics. My name is Jeremy Middleton. I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist and associate professor of pediatrics. I'm also the clerkship director at the University of Virginia. Today, we'll discuss how to best prepare when headed to the pediatric GI clinic. Pediatric gastroenterology is a subspecialty clinic caring for children of a variety of ages from infancy to adolescence for a wide host of gastrointestinal, pancreatic, liver, and nutrition issues. A subspecialty in pediatric GI is an additional three-year fellowship after the three-year pediatric residency. While you're in Peds GI Clinic, you may see any number of clinical conditions, or you may be able to focus on a single patient population during a specialty GI clinic. These specific clinics can include feeding disorders, inflammatory bowel disease, intestinal rehabilitation, eosinophilic gastrointestinal disorders, liver transplant, motility disorders, or aerodigestive issues. It will be important for you to know which type of patients you'll be seeing during your pediatric GI clinic day. For the purpose of this podcast, we will concentrate our conversation on being in a general pediatric GI clinic. Like in all outpatient pediatric clinics, it will be important for you to briefly orient yourself to the clinic space and ask your attending about any specific expectations and the overall objectives of the clinic experience. Make sure to know whether you are responsible for writing notes and how efficient you should be during your patient interactions. Some clinics can move quite fast, and you need to make sure that you're not slowing down the pace of the clinic. You should also understand how to best utilize the electronic medical record to find past notes or notes from outside facilities so you have a good understanding of the patient before going into the room. Let's now think about children with GI disorders. Some of the main chief complaints are chronic abdominal pain, diarrhea, bloody stools, weight loss, nausea or vomiting, and difficulty swallowing. Some of the more common gastrointestinal issues that you may encounter are chronic inflammatory conditions such as Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, celiac disease, and eosinophilic esophagitis. You may also be exposed to children with an infectious disease like H. pylori leading to gastritis or ulcers, or an acute infectious diarrhea, including C. difficile colitis. One of the more common problems seen in general GI clinic are what is referred to as functional GI disorders, or disorders of the gut-brain axis. Conditions such as irritable bowel syndrome, functional constipation, cyclic vomiting, rumination syndrome, functional dyspepsia, and abdominal migraine all fit into this category. When approaching a child in the pediatric GI clinic, it is important to get a precise understanding of the child's symptoms. Don't presume the words patients use are exactly what you think they are. Frequently, patients will use the term vomiting when in fact they're regurgitating, or they'll sell pain when they really mean nausea. Speaking of pain, the PQRST mnemonic is helpful. Make sure you know what provoked the pain, the quality of the pain, whether the pain radiates, how severe the pain is, the timing of the pain, and what the family has used to help treat the pain. Specific questions to ask in Peds GI Clinic would be if the pain wakes the patient at night, how much school or other activities the patient has missed because of the symptoms, 
whether defecation or passage of gas alleviates pain, and specific dietary change changes the family may have already tried. Children with a disorder of the gut-brain axis, like irritable bowel syndrome, are more likely to have missed out on school or activities because of symptoms. In addition, frequently there are other somatic complaints, including sleep disorders, chronic headache, lightheadedness from postural orthostasis tachycardia syndrome, or POTS, anxiety and depression, chronic fatigue, and all of these are common complaints that you may see in children with disorders of the gut-brain axis. It is important to ask about these symptoms in addition to the GI symptoms. Because there continues to be a stigma around anxiety and abdominal symptoms, frequently asking whether stress or being worried exacerbates abdominal symptoms is a good way to understand whether psychosocial stressors may be playing a part in their chronic belly issues. Obviously, in Pete's GI clinic, you'll have to ask about some pretty disgusting stuff. Don't be bashful. Just come out and ask about pooping. Whether you say bowel movement, defecation, stooling, or pooping, just make sure the family and the patient know exactly what you're referring to. Be sure to understand the quality of the stool, the size, the caliber of the bowel movement. You can always use the Bristol stool scale as a pictorial way to represent the types of stools. In children with diarrhea, ask about dietary changes or exacerbating symptoms is really important. One of the most important questions to ask, though, is about nocturnal stools. In children with osmotic diarrhea, they won't be eating at night, and so they will not be having any nocturnal stooling. A child with an inflammatory or secretory diarrhea may wake up one or more times at night to have bowel movements. One of the most common problems a pediatric gastroenterologist encounters is constipation. The biggest reason we see constipation is because children will withhold after a painful bowel movement, and then this leads to problems. If children associate bowel movements with pain, they will do everything in their power to withhold that stool, and this can lead to bloating, decreased appetite, large painful bowel movements, and even vomiting. It's important to ask whether children are having stool accidents, what we call encapresis, and whether there are urinary or neurologic issues that may be going on as well. Although far and away the most common reason for pediatric constipation is withholding, you have to think about Hirschsprung disease, which is why you ask about passage of meconium in the first 48 hours of life. Pediatric GI docs also think a lot about the upper GI tract. Although gastroesophageal reflux is common in children, there is a rising prevalence of eosinophilic esophagitis as well. One of the most common reasons for infants to come to the GI doc is reflux. Infant reflux, for the most part, is physiologic. The vast majority of infants will have some amount of reflux or regurgitation by six months of age, and it can last as long as 15 to 18 months old. Although reflux can be perceived as quite troublesome, as long as infants are thriving, they'll grow out of this condition. Frequently, there are other associated symptoms such as fussiness, back arching, or even distension. And it's important to make sure there are no other issues such as cow milk protein allergy or anatomic problems such as antral webs or pyloric stenosis going on. Less common is that the problem stems from the distal intestinal 
tract. These problems such as anal stenosis or even Hirschsprung disease may lead to increased regurgitation or vomiting in infants. Most of the time, supportive measures such as using anti-reflux formula, adding oatmeal to bottles, increasing the frequency of feeds with less volume, early introduction of solids, or even a solid bowel regimen can be helpful to provide tools the family can use to get through these reflux symptoms. Few infants will need acid-blocking medications because most physiologic reflux is postprandial and not acidic. Older children can definitely experience reflux symptoms in the form of heartburn, chest pain, or even regurgitation. It is important to try and sort out whether a child has gastroesophageal reflux disease or eosinophilic esophagitis, as their symptoms can be quite similar. Understanding if there is a history of atopy, including food allergy, seasonal allergic rhinitis, asthma, or eczema is quite important. Subtle symptoms of EOE is that a child may be a very slow eater or requires fluids throughout a meal. Although food impaction can be a common symptom in adolescents and adults, that's less frequently seen in school-aged children, where the primary symptom of EOE can be generalized belly pain, frequent throat clearing, avoidance of certain foods, or persistent regurgitation. When approaching a child to perform a physical exam in GI clinic, you will want to be relatively thorough. Growth parameters are so, so important in PEDS GI, and you should not only look at the height, weight, and BMI percentile, but also the trajectory if you have growth parameters prior to the visit. Reviewing the vital signs is also imperative, and getting a good general assessment of the patient is really important. Make sure to evaluate for conjunctival pallor, oral ulcers, and tonsillar hypertrophy when evaluating the head and neck. Feel for lymphadenopathy in the neck, axilla, and inguinal regions. Look at the patient's hands for signs of pallor, clubbing from chronic inflammation, and also pitting of the nail beds. An abdominal exam in children can be tricky, and distraction goes a long way. Think about having the child put their knees up, and if they're super ticklish, you can always have them put their hand on their abdomen while you push on top of it to evaluate for pain. A good trick is to listen with your stethoscope, but push down gently while you're listening to assess for discomfort. Another very important physical exam maneuver is to percuss and palpate the liver. It's important to start percussion low and work your way up to the rib cage. Sometimes if a child has a large liver, you can miss it if you start just below the rib cage. Once you start percussing, slowly travel upward towards the ribs. If you hear and feel a change of resistance of resonance while you're percussing prior to the rib cage, that's likely due to an enlarged liver. Although check with your attending physician about performing GU and rectal exams, it's a really important part of the physical exam in GI clinic. Not only are you assessing the position of the anus to make sure that it is not anteriorly displaced, but you're looking for signs of skin tags, abscesses, and fissures as well. Frequently, patients with perianal Crohn disease will have skin tags that providers confuse for hemorrhoids. Hemorrhoids are way less common in children than adults, and it's important to realize the difference between a tag and a hemorrhoid. 
In children with chronic constipation, a digital exam will allow you to evaluate for signs of an anal stricture, but more often, it's whether or not there's a large, hard, and painful impaction that will require an aggressive clean-out plan to manage. Other important examination features would be a thorough dermatologic and joint exam because extraintestinal manifestations of celiac disease and Crohn's disease can present with problems of the skin and joints. When presenting patients in the PGI clinic, typically you'll have either an initial visit or a follow-up. For initial visits, you'll be doing the full history, the past medical history, the family history, the social history, a full physical exam in addition to your assessment and plan. I would recommend providing previous workup in, and laboratory studies in the history of present illness rather than doing it after the physical exam. When seeing a follow-up visit, it's really important to know the timing of the last visit. You should also know what was prescribed in the last visit and whether there's been any interval change. Make sure to include pertinent physical exam features in your assessment statement and do your best to come up with a complete evaluation and treatment plan for each of the patients you're seeing. Good luck in Pete's GI Clinic, and hopefully this will help you excel and get the most out of your clinical experience. Thanks for listening to Clerkship Ready Pediatrics. I hope you found today's podcast helpful. Don't forget to subscribe below and write the podcast. 